This is Untimely Reflections, a series of conversations with some of my friends, streamed here through the Nietzsche podcast. Uh, now I'm picturing that comic where it's like these two rob- robots reciting poetry to another and then like forcing humans to like dig their own graves. Yeah, yeah, something like that. More, more along the lines of we were promised that AI would be used to automate away all the boring, menial, tedious jobs. And then that'll give us, us more time to recite poetry. And that it, it seems like the, the opposite has happened. Now, I, I, I personally don't believe that, at least to the extent that I don't think AI technology will like, actually make the artist obsolete. Well, I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, I've even used AI professionally. And well, like the the prediction I make in my article, which in a way is very easy because I've been like through some uh, important changes when it comes to like the, uh, the field of illustration, um, which is that like as tools become more powerful, uh, powerful than uh, the demands and standards increase accordingly. And so... Like, right. I mean, it's, it's not as if like, for example, um, if, if you give like an animation studio, um, way more powerful computers, it's not like they just, um, render everything way faster and then just kind of sit back and relax or, um, or anything like that. I mean, they're like render times have been cut down, but like generally it tends to, incentivize people into just like throwing more at the computers, like trying to do more. And I mean, in a way it's like just a a feature of the human condition, I think, Um, even though I've heard some people say that like, it's kind of like a Western brainwashing to always want more than you have. But I don't think that really checks out um, just because of (laughs) how, um, how, how like crucial that problem was for, you know, Indian philosophy. Um, in the form of right, or you could just look at the fact that there's ambitious people in every society, it seems. Yeah, and like he, th- this is a somewhat trivial example, but kind of related to the topic, which is like um, I had a kind of entry level video card, and I really wanted a better one to, you know, um, train myself to get good at it because it is like a very big commercial opportunity. And I got the 4090 as soon as I got it I'm like okay this is good but I want more right like I I maxed it out almost immediately it's not that hard to do I'm like I dream of a day where I can take my like silly little like musical phrases and then turn them into a song by just like describing it to a computer and kind of playing around with it but then okay I'll be like okay this is good but I want like a whole album or I want to like make a a movie or a trilogy like it just never ends and then like when it comes to the thing about like well you don't really have time to write poetry that's probably like just the inertia of social structure and by i mean the word just is doing a lot of heavy lifting there right well and i don't believe that people don't have time to write poetry it's just that they 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 imagine that they'd be completely freed from having to be part of the economy and do things that actually contribute in some way, right? The machines would do all that, and then we can just do self-indulgent things, like solely. Don't have to do any sort of like 
what would you say, uh, labor, right? And just in the broadest sense. I don't believe that they don't actually have time. I, I know some people will say that. Um, but, you know, you have to prioritize uh, what is actually important to you <laughs> in that situation, I guess. And if you, like, are working, like, you know, a full-time job, if you want to be a poet, if that's, like, your dream, then you're just not going to have... You have to spend all your time where you would just be relaxing, like, just doing that. But I don't think... I mean, my belief, personally, is that AI is not... Uh, the way that you're you're talking about using it, or the way that I've seen you use it, is way more involved in, like you said, you know, when it comes to, like, rendering things with computer animation for films. It's not like you just sort of press a button and the AI just does it. It's a tool that you can use to enhance your own artwork as well. And there was that Beatles song that just came out where they used AI to uh, generate what George Harrison would have played on it. Did you Did you hear this song? Yeah, I thought it was all right. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds legitimate. It sounds exactly like Be- the Beatles in 1970. But yeah, they they I believe only had uh, John Lennon's vocal tracks, and I believe the p- a piano demo, some a couple other things that were unfinished, and used AI to <laughs> figure out what George Harrison would have played. I don't know. It 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 sounded very legitimate to me. There was no. The the meme that I, I know you're familiar with where people say, well, this doesn't have any soul to it. I didn't get that impression at all. I, I wouldn't have been able to distinguish it if you hadn't told me that it was AI. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder what your take is on, on the whole thing about, like, can music. And, you know, the, the point that I make in the article is that, like, the the degree to which we've been accustomed to the idea of um, media or art being uh, digitally reproduced is is such that like the criticisms of a hundred years ago would seem like legitimately crazy. Well, maybe that's a bit too far, but like like I point out, I don't I don't think I've ever heard someone uh, say that they're incapable of feeling something um, when watching a movie or a song um, just because it was you know like a, a digital recording of it. Right, you're referring to vaudeville and the tradition that you had a you had live music playing during the show and then over time i mean what is it the the is he's like a theater director the quote from the the one historical figure who was sort of saying uh eventually there will be like a, a completely canned show let me see if i can find it really quick where he says the american federation of musicians president joseph n weber said quote the time is coming fast when the only living thing around a motion picture house will be the person who sells you your ticket. Everything else will be mechanical. Can drama, can music, can vaudeville. We think the public will tire of mechanical music and will want the real thing. We are not against scientific development of any kind, but it must not come at the expense of art. We are not opposing industrial progress. We are not even opposing mechanical music except where it is used as a profiteering instrument for artistic debasement. Uh, end quote. So yeah, I mean, it's this kind of, I mean, what he's saying is there should be a live symphony scoring the motion picture and not a pre-recorded soundtrack. And that does sound completely ridiculous. It's not an objection any modern person would ever even think to have at the movies. And I guess you could say that, huh, how do I put this? That is a sense 
I can see how that threatened the musicians of that time because they're thinking we're always going to have work at these theater houses. Can you imagine if, you know, like that movie Oppenheimer that came out had an amazing score. Can you imagine if they had a live score at every single theater that was showing it? How many musicians would get employment? Uh, yeah, that like, would be amazing. It would be amazing for them, right? <laughs> for a modern symphonic uh, or classically trained musician, you would you would have amazingly steady work. But it's hugely impractical. And yeah, I so I my reaction to it is if I were to play devil's advocate or kind of steel man the a critical position on your article, it would be that what what is our what is the basis for saying that's like an analogous technological change? Like maybe they're different and there's some sort of different quality to digital music or canned music versus live. Maybe there's some sort of essential difference there with AI art is that there might be some qualitative difference between that change. A qualitative difference, like in, in the experience of it, you mean? Well, you could say that somebody still has to, you still have human beings writing and recording the, the canned music, right? So there's a human element that's just sort of being recorded and saved. Whereas the argument with AI art is you're just telling a machine what to do and it just makes it for you. So there's no human artist, quote unquote, involved. I mean, I, I'm not saying that necessarily matters. I'm just, I could see somebody objecting on that basis. Like, I think that gets to kind of the heart of, of the problem I'm trying to, trying to solve with, with writing this. I think that the, the process of creativity is... You know, for a lot of people, something like intimate and important and to some degree, like the the very core of like the, the joy in their life, you know, like they they talk about it as almost like a mystical experience. Like, you know, they even describe it as uh, gods or spirits kind of moving through them. I mean, from like a little bit more of a sober perspective, I would interpret that as some artifact of the you know, um, conditioning of, um, of the, the culture, of right? Genius. Yeah. What is it? Creativity coming sort of out of the ether, I guess. Yeah. And like, I mean, speaking of material, materialism, in the very broad sense, I, I think that by doing that, you know, it's, it's fetishizing creativity in the sense that like, it doesn't look at the background under which it's constructed. And I mean, to say that like opens up a whole can of worms of like the existence of souls and, and stuff like that. But um, I mean, well, or, yeah, if yeah. we want to be strictly materialistic and Nietzschean about it, we could say people have imp impulses or instincts or a physiological unconscious backdrop. Your thoughts have this unconscious origin. So people don't, as you say in the, the article, your thoughts don't have a receipt attached to them, so people don't know necessarily where their inspiration comes from. And that ignorance allows them to sort of shroud uh, their creativity in a sort of mysticism. And when you said fetish, fetishism earlier, uh, just to be clear, um, this is in the same sense that Marx might talk about commodity fetishism. Um, fetishizing something 
is the failure to recognize that it's coming out of like the so in, in the commodities case that a commodity is valuable due to the material and social circumstances in which that commodity is traded and use the example of gold uh, gold isn't inherently valuable that would be a kind of a ridiculous claim to make i mean i guess there are some uses of gold but it it's it's not there was you know it wasn't used to to back up like world currencies you know the world reserve currency uh, because of you know whatever application gold might have, and you know some aspects of like engineering or something like that, um, it's far more valuable than it should be, right? And similarly, I guess with creativity, you're you're saying that it's it's a failure to understand the material basis of creativity, the psychological physiological basis of creativity. Yeah, and. I mean, I, I just find Marx so um, on the money here, so to speak. Like, it's, I guess, um, kind of commonplace to to talk about commodity fetishism, but, like, I just find it such um, a pernicious and uh, constant effect of the way that um, life functions in the modern world, where, like, so many things are hidden from view, and... You know, at, at like cocktail parties, you'll hear, hear people, you know, um, use phrases like, you know, how the sausage is made, right? So like, there's kind of an understanding of like the the dirty and hidden elements of the world. It gets to the point where, I mean, to, to really deflate it, like this this big bag of tricks that we call creativity gets elevated to the point where like some people like refuse to believe that it's even theoretically possible for a machine to create things. And so like the, the, the thing I've heard um, many times, many people say is that like, okay, you can teach, you can like give these machines, um, you know, like a big data set and they can combine it in some way, but that's not true creativity. And like, what's, what's, what's strange to me about this is that like, even like at the very early stages when I was playing with like the, the really toy versions of um, like diffusion models, it's so apparent to me that it is coming up with new ideas. I mean, it 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 like pushes the 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 standard for like originality to like a, a literally impossible degree. Because like even if like let's say the diffusion models had a a much um, like smaller or, or, or um, uh, a much weaker ability to compress like visual data than a human like how could a human creative process work right like they they are taking some kind of input data and then like rearranging it through the brain right, right. i think you 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 are onto something or at least my intuition tells me you're correct that when people are talking creativity in the sense of true creativity they do mean something magical. <laughs> like they think there's something going on there that that can't be reduced to simply inputting taking sense data that's already been memorized or things that you already have in your mind that you've seen before and rearranging it. I think they do think there is something like the spark of genius that they can't define. That is some special arbitrary thing about genius. And since, yeah, machines don't have souls, <laughs> like they, uh, you know, 
can't possibly have this. So I think that that does probably adequately describe the psychology. But maybe the problem that people have with this is that let's say let's just grant that the ro a robot could have creativity or an AI could have creativity. I think then the actual objection is just the irritation at the robot getting to be creative when that's what we all want to do. Or at least that's one of the premises is that people, all people want to go and be creative. I'm not sure that that's actually true, but it is a commonly held belief. And it does seem to be a thing that a lot of people are functionally believing in, or it's like informing the way they're living their lives. Um, I think there would be a lot of problems if we just had like a Star Trek like society where everyone could be quote unquote freed up to be creative I think a lot of people might find that they don't actually want self-directed time, <laughs> right? A lot of people might, might need that structure imposed on them, so to speak, or might actually flourish under that environment more. But I guess maybe that's a bit of a digression, but I guess I'm just trying to point to the same way the musicians just felt threatened, right, by the canned music. A lot of the metaphysical-seeming disagreements about the nature of creativity i think are sort of a smokescreen for that same just like emotional response right they're just fighting against this threat yeah i like i do find it mm, sympathetic right like the position they're in where like they spent so much of their time like you know you know but presumably like they had to spend a lot of time uh honing their ability to like play music like it's very difficult to i mean speaking as someone with very little musical talent, like it's extremely hard for me to like make anything resembling, you know, a good song. And so like to get to the level where you're like performing in front of other people, like that's a huge chunk of your time invested in this thing that now is like um, being treated as like, mm, I don't know, just like a little trinket that you turn on that's like, you know, uh, a really secondary component to this like entertainment experience. So like from that point of view, um, I get it. One image that comes to mind regarding the mm, like emotional component of this kind of technological innovation is a scene from uh, Tarkovsky's movie, Andrei Rublev, where there's like, like this hot air balloon in the 15th century lifting up and the villagers just like, in a fury, like following it, wanting to take it down. Um, I will say that, like, if I may speculate about more of the mm, emotional component, it's that, like, if you were to look at creativity as something that can be successfully reproduced by, you know, these um, these big models, which is basically math. If you like attach this, you know, like mystical significance to creativity, and you can see like a you know, a bunch of sand and metal doing it, then you're like, oh, well, then the value that I've assigned to sand and metal, which is like basically nothing, it's just stuff, right? Then maybe that's the value of what I have, right? That feels awful. But like, I guess what I would say in response to that is like the kind of like false sense of security in calling something like material in the sense that like, okay, like it's, it's something you can grok, right? Like it's an object like sand or metal, but 
like even with all of the computer power in the world, it's still not possible to simulate like a single square inch of the ocean, right? Like if you were to count all of the atoms in that square inch and then have to like simulate them accurately with each other and then also consider that like those atoms behave differently considering it like, like, like at w whatever level you're looking at. So like there's the atomic level, but then there's also like the cellular level, cellular level. And then you have to like accurately model DNA and all of these things. It's like, I think there's not enough like respect for like how complicated material things are because of that. Like there's, you know, th there's like this inverted sense of, like respect so like um because the kind of world we live in it, like does involve um like a huge um like distribution curve of talent the people who can you know pick up an instrument and play it well um is very rare so obviously that's going to be more salient than people who can you know barely string notes together but then when because that's like kind of a superficial thing compared to like the level of like um, a cell, like in terms of complexity, because that's more salient, it okay. seems like more important. And um, then when you're like, okay, well, we can actually just, you know, compress this digitally and then create um, like a latent space where, you know, these concepts are, are linked and you can kind of create these, these amazing new things that obscures the fact that like what's extremely complicated is like getting like an actual neuron modeled like that's still beyond people's capability i i would agree with that um just basically everything everything you said there and in terms of an analogy that comes to mind um is with chess engines um and how basically when you were talking about you know the standards of what would you say the standards of creativity and originality are inevitably going to be greatly heightened in the wake of this new industrial technology or this industrial revolution and artificial intelligence um similarly like we're at the point now where like no human being can be like the the best chess computer it's not even like conceivable and it the initial what it made me think of was when they were first even thinking of the idea of having a chess computer. Um, you may have heard like the uh, statistic that there's more possible chess games than there are atoms in the universe. What that originally comes from is Shannon's number, who was a mathematician who was basically arguing against the possibility of having a computer play chess because he said there are so many different positions that since it outnumbers the number of atoms in the universe, no computer would ever be able to model it. Um, and so it kind of reminded me of that when you were talking about you couldn't ever model like all of the, um, you know, just the material atomic structure of like even a square inch of the ocean, right? But what's interesting is that's, it's the machine intelligence in a funny way. It's like another way in which it's sort of, might be superior or more, I, I'm trying to think of a way to, to put it, more intelligent than us in a way that we don't even understand. Because if you, yes, if you just put in by rote every single position in chess, you, the computer wouldn't be able to do it. But what we found is that it doesn't think like a human being does, and it doesn't approach the situation that way. 
and that in many ways, like you can't even really understand how it thinks. Uh, and this has been a problem increasingly with using AI to solve problems with modeling like the genome or molecular structure of the cell or whatever. That sometimes they'll get the right answer, but it's not science unless you know how you got the correct answer, to, to, to put it uh, one way. And oftentimes the machine intelligence is so far above us that it's opaque to us how it got the answer. Um, so I don't know. To me, that indicates that it actually might be more creative than human beings. That if that creativity might be in some sense, we're 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 like looking to locate it in some mystical or spiritual or somehow mysterious faculty, some spark of genius, but that it may just simply be a function of like problem solving, um, you know, the the skill for like empirical data collecting. That creativity is really just, in a way, you could look at it as an iteration of our conscious ability for problem solving and coming to innovative solutions in the face of a given challenge, right? And that obviously with a heightened ability to uh, bring that to bear, right? You would have potentially even greater creativity than a human being. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'm coming up with the right words to get across what I'm, what I'm trying to, but uh, I, you know, a lot of my thoughts on this are very, um, I, I still, I still have a lot of unknowns about AI, or where I haven't fully formed my positions on it. <laughs> so, yeah, fair enough. I, I still feel um, like a little unsure, especially about the safety stuff. But like you, you mentioned Shannon's number, and one thing that you might find interesting is that like when they were first um, like trying to design the large language models, they had the same like intuition which is like if you're if you're trying to program a computer to like you know come up with an essay like as soon as you come up i think it's like in the first few like characters there's so many different options you could choose from that like it would have to have you know like every atom in the universe corralled into its like hard drives to be able to uh, do it but it turns out that like if you do predict it statistically based on like you know a large enough corpus i don't know what it is like 100 billion let's say um tokens but like it it just so happens that it's a lot simpler than they thought it was to like come up with like a decent enough approximation of like writing a creative essay and um i mean i like my experience with stable diffusion which um i think the original training set was like five billion images compressed into about five gigabytes um I mean, there's there's probably more like with all of the like um, additions on it, or like the the fine tuning that model uh, fine tuning that people have done. But like to me, it's uh, unambiguously more creative than anyone I've ever met. It's like the most amazing tool I've used in like I, like I've started using Photoshop and doing computer graphics when I was in um, seventh grade. I went to like a, an arts program school. And most of the time we were just on the computer doing computer graphics. So like I've seen a lot of things in my time and this is by far the most amazing thing I've ever come across. Like it's actually like um, incredible to me. And then the fact that people like deny creativity is like 
I don't know. I mean, I can't even think of a, an appropriate analogy. It'd be like someone saying that like a horse is faster than a Lamborghini. Um, right. Cause but, the horse has a soul. The, exactly. It does have a soul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is something you can bond with better, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that, that's an interesting point. The soul element. Yeah. yeah. Well, whereas what it seems like you're saying, which I think if I could maybe vulgarize your, your argument, the horse is also a machine, right? It's a material machine. Is that um, accurate? That, that's a, that's an interesting, I didn't like, I, I, uh, I hadn't thought it, um, through to that point, but yeah, it would be, I mean, like, um, in Dennett's book, consciousness explained, like, well, I mean, in other places too, he, he says that like, we're basically, a a collect, a a collection of a like a trillion tiny robots um and of course like they're like the different sets of these robots have like um like a different set of agency as it goes up um or like they behave differently right like the you know golgi apparatus behaves differently than the cell which behaves differently than the tissue than the organ etc so it's not like they're all just it's it's um um it's not yeah, it's not as if like they're just a trillion robots with their own aim or something like that yeah yeah they they work together but um yeah i mean i i guess like hmm, like so, so another thing that i wanted to touch on is um a very simple idea but i think a, a very important one that i'm still grappling with which is that like action has historically preceded thought. So like, um, you know, you mentioned that machine intelligence is opaque, which is kind of an amazing thing when you think about it, because it is like a deliberately um, engineered thing. Like it's not something that came up by accident. And yet like there's, you know, all these researchers, researchers um, like testing this thing out and then finding all these strange and interesting, interesting things. Um, one of them, at least in the, the image diffusion model is is that like it somehow understands like 3D space even though all it has been trained on is you know like um, arrays of numbers. Right. I've I've always found that like so strange. Like I remember when I was in art school, and um, you know I I just have like this instinct to kind of think of like, well, I need a reason to do things, right? Like I need to have like a properly laid out plan for doing things. Um, but I'm like, I can't think of like, what is, why am I making art? Like, I don't really understand this behavior. And I found it strange that like, um, it was just assumed that that's like a thing you do. And yet there wasn't ever like a, an explicit representation of, or like an explicit justification of that behavior. And I'm like, all these classes, they just like, okay, well, we have this art history and now you're here, you're, we're going to learn how to be artists. But it's like, well, why are we doing this? It's never really clear to me. Why am I making art, right? Like it's, it seemed like this, almost like an arbitrary thing. Like I could be doing anything else. Um, and I mean, I guess what I just didn't realize is that like there's, um, like we, we do things and then we kind of reflect on them. It kind of has to be that way, right? The reason why the artists don't know why they do art is because it it's 
like an opposite orientation to the world of the philosopher. Like artists, in some sense, have to not be too introspective or (laughs) can like ruin the process. So would you say, uh, I mean, you probably hang out with more artists, at least in the sense that mm, I think most people think of artists. Because um, I, I work in like the architectural field, it's not like I mean I guess they are technically artists, but not like, mm, not like bohemian artists. You know, what they're, I mean? they're like mercenary artistic mercenaries. <laughs> sure. Well, like you, you know, it, it, you're using your art for paid work. It's not. Um, it's not pure creativity, right? Because the at the end of the day, the building has to function. Well, or if yeah, if you have a pushback on that i I'm, I'm interested well like it still involves um like creative decisions but then like the guidance comes from somebody else um okay i i find it so interesting how like the um, how big of a difference that makes for me like i'm okay with spending uh, like i gave i can even feel the energy bubble up in me when i know that like i'm the art director but when someone's asking me to do something for them um, that uses like the, the same skill set, the same programs, the same everything, it just feels like, I don't know, like I'm, I'm in chains because <laughs> like my, my skills and my creativity is being used for like somebody else's vision. And I understand that it has to be like that, right? Like there's maybe like a handful of people on the globe who have like the level of I don't know, cultural cachet that um, allows them to be treated like there's some, like there's something very special about their mind. I mean, maybe like I, I have a friend who's um, who's like an engineer by training, and he'll often like express his respect for visual art and visual artists, and like even you know like give me like their quotes about you know the, the process, of the work, and the meaning of it. And to me, like so often, it just seems like pretentious nonsense, right? Like just useless. I'm like, that's just like a cheap trick. Like they don't know what they're talking about. Um, and then like, I'll express like this admiration for like, you know, scientists and engineers. And he's like, he kind of like um, downplays that. So I don't know if it's like a temperamental thing where like you you tend to be like even reactionary when it comes to like the things you know. Um, I mean, maybe th- that's kind of like a steel man of the other position. I really do think, though, like, as you say, like, artists don't tend to, like, reflect too much. Because, like, I did find it paralyzing. Like, when I, when I went through those periods of being, like, unsure of, like, the philosophical grounding of this behavior, it's not like at the same time I was also, like, making tons of stuff. I'm like, uh, it was quite the opposite. I'm just like, I don't see the, the point of this, right? It just seems like a drain on my energy. Um, without any right, why not be the artistic mercenary? Right? Why wouldn't it be smarter? Like at least then that you know, like the 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 parallel in music is being a session player or a recording musician, where you just you get hired by people to play their compositions, and it's probably the same thing like where you talk about being in chains like uh or that feeling like i'm chained down to somebody else's idea basically 
and you're still using your creative talents, your art, your technique, and everything, but you're working for someone else's creative vision, right? It's very difficult to construct some sort of logical argument for why you shouldn't, why your highest goal as a musician shouldn't to be be to be a session musician, or to be in a cover band that makes money, right? But everyone irrationally wants to say, well, no, I want to have the creative vision that also makes money. And like, as you said, it's only a handful of people who have that, that ability or that luck or that talent, whatever it might be, the confluence of factors that allows them to do that. And so the vast, vast, vast majority of people are spending their life's energy and their material resources towards a goal that is not practical in any sense. And then when you ask them why they do it, they'll say, well, art for art's sake, which is a meaningless phrase. It's just X equals X, right? <laughs> it is what it is. You're saying absolutely nothing when you say, I'm doing art for art's sake. To do something for its own sake, I mean, what does that really mean? Um, it, it, that, it's a fr it's type of phrase that you'll hear coming out of, you know, I guess existentialism or whatever the case may be, but it, it's never really made much sense to me. And I think everyone knows it doesn't really make any sense. And so I think, I mean, I do have my own theory on why we, we, uh, human beings are artistic creatures, but I, I do agree with you first and foremost, most people, you have to kind of be both philosophically and artistically inclined to understand it, I think, because if you're just solely an artist, you're never going to introspect. I mean, they do introspect, but not about the very topic that we're talking about, right? Like, why do I do art? If you bring that kind of rationality to bear and that, like, frankly, romantic worldview that all art seems to be based on, um, like, again, you'll be kind of paralyzed or you'll, you'll, you'll put yourself in a rut for no reason. Whereas if you're just purely the philosopher or philosophical type, or you could loop this in with scientific mindedness as well, but focused on like underlying form or structure or the reasons why things happen. Um, generally those people are not able to, they don't have as much respect for the romantic side of things. And unless you've actually, unless you are, can actually be absorbed in that kind of like romantic craziness, I think it's pretty hard to understand it. Um, and so I think people like you and me, I mean, <laughs> it's funny because you criticize Nietzsche for the for saying something to this effect of saying like, oh, I'm, you know, Nietzsche's message in this passage is essentially like, you know, I am very unique and I'm a special genius apart from the herd. And you're kind of nodding along with the sentence that millions of people have read <laughs> and nodded along with. But I do think people like you and me are probably in a better position to understand or like at least raise this kind of inquiry about what art or creativity is, because I think you have to have both sorts of experiences. I, I think that we haven't done ourselves any favors though, by basically, like you said, in taking these classes or like course of education on art, no one ever tells you why. Whereas it's like if you're studying medicine or something there, it's not like they couldn't articulate that. Like, why am I learning? Because I want to save lives of human beings, right? I think that's a good thing to do. Whereas art, it's not clear at all. And then it's treated as if, again, this kind of popular prejudice, like, well, everyone would just like to be a creative and be an artist. 
And I think a lot of people even think that who it would be terrible for them <laughs> if they if they had it, that life. I mean, the the one time that I remember there being like um, an explicit like um, mission plan for like making art was in my uh, like Baroque art history class where we were talking about Caravaggio and um, it was like the teacher was saying that number one, like Caravaggio is such a good artist that like, he's not even going to bother being an artist because he could never top it. So like he, he, he clearly respected it as like the pinnacle of like human achievement in visual art. And he said that like the reason that Caravaggio made his images, at least like when he was, you know, being commissioned by the Catholic church was that it was like part of like basically this this big propaganda machine like you would have visual art you'd have like incense and music and stunning architecture and it was all designed to make you a christian but like it's not as if the class was like okay and then therefore you should also be like guiding people to christianity it was not like it was just <laughs> that you know he was just saying that's what he did then isn't it nice it's right but it's not like that's what he did then We've moved on to that. We've realized that, like, you know, Christianity is like a man-made, uh, um, you know, attempt to understand and uh, to understand the world and, like, give um, people guidance. And then we've moved on to that. And th now the reason we make art is X. Like, that X was never specified. Um, it just seemed kind of like you said, that there's this, like, really clumsy uh, thing put in its place where, like, you're just doing it for its own sake. So like, um, you know, you have these like really ugly and silly indulgent experiments that people have where, you know, they'll, you know, throw a bucket of sand on the ground and, and, you know, like call it like some like subversive, um, comment on society. I mean, I, I guess art for art's sake is proposed in contrast to that kind of like um, like probably traditionally a religious uh, goal, right? Of like converting people, like moving away from that and just kind of having fun, right? Um, but then like when you consider the amount of work involved in making something beautiful and interesting, um, it's not it it it's not really clear like how you could be like that motivated unless you just really enjoy the process. And I mean, I feel like I enjoy so many things that like if i wasn't forced to be a visual artist i would just be like a dilettante in like a million different things but like having been forced to make images for like several hours every single day for like you know a decade i i'm just i'm really good at it not to to, to my own horn but like i know i'm really good at it um but like if it wasn't for that i'm not sure if I would be doing it for its own sake necessarily. I mean, now that, because I'm good at it, I do tend to do it more often. And in fact, um, because AI takes so much of the awful grunt work um, out of the process. Right, the, tedi the tedious aspects of your, the, your way of making visual art are basically completely reduced by the AI technology. And, and, and yeah, people like, have to argue in favor of preserving that because of their yep. commitment to the creativity idea. Yeah, it's it's really uh, amazing how the fact, like, I know I, I wrote this other article a while ago um, where I, I coined this 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 phrase I call the ugly, ugly duckling aesthetic philosophy 
the idea being that like whatever work of art someone makes is valid because it just needs to be in the right context in the same way that like you know you might be you might be ugly around ducklings because you're actually a beautiful swan and so if you're around swans you're beautiful and so like you know you might make some awful thing but it, it just needs to be seen by the right audience and a part of that ugly duckling aesthetic philosophy is that like the more effort you put into it the more you it is right the more it's taken a chunk out of your life um the more valuable it is because it, because it's like even more you like you've spent years on it so then it's more valuable and so like this is i think the most obvious situation or maybe the most common one and um most forgivable forgivable one is like for kids right like if they put a lot of work into something and it's you know a piece of junk you're not going to just tell them directly because you're trying to reinforce behavior such as um you know dedication concentration um um effort right which are important and then you assume that it will eventually transform um through discipline into um into something better right like as their motor control gets better as their ability to reflect critically on the piece gets better etc like but then that also I've, i i see it translated to you know adult life so for example i uh i uploaded a video of me working on um an image with stable diffusion and it's like a, it took me a few hours and it got way more attention than other pieces that i've just put like a picture up right and i mean which uh which piece was this um this is a piece it's like a a woman in a pink robe praying in a room of computers okay yeah i know what you're talking about and part of it i mean part of it is like the knowledge curse it's like i'm so used to doing this kind of work that maybe it's become invisible to me how um how much skill it takes cuz i know it does right i know it takes skill but to me like it doesn't matter if it takes skill to make it the important thing is how good it is like when how it turns out i think it's a it's a good piece it's not my best right but um but i think like there's there's these like mm, i don't want to call them regressive factors but there's like some something is embedded in like the the like cultural interface of art which prioritizes a lot of things that are not that aren't related to either like the the quality of life in like the creation of the art or even the way the art looks it's like all this other stuff of like um even like political alliances like um if a lot of people like you and you make art you're you'll obviously become more popular and successful right than being like an ordinary person who um make makes amazing stuff i mean like the ordinary person persona which is like i guess nietzsche well i mean i guess he did have like friends who kind of champion his work and plus it was obviously very good well, i was also going to say in the in the age of the content creator you can totally be you can play that as a character <laughs> that's the that's kind of the funny thing but there is a there's a there's a per, a correct performative way to do it in an incorrect way um and I don't know if I can articulate exactly what that is, because it's 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 a you know when you see it type of thing. There are people who who sell the idea of being you know 
sassy or short with people or super sarcastic or super dismissive. Um, and people, sometimes the audience loves that. Something I wanted to, uh, to touch on was like, you mentioned that the, like there's a romantic worldview that's kind of embedded in the role of the artist. And I have a, a story to illustrate this. Um, I went to a conference uh, called SIGGRAPH, which is for like computer graphics. And I was talking to an artist at Pixar and I was asking her about like <laughs> the nature of souls, like if souls exist. And like for me, this like obviously they don't. At least not in 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 like in in any way that isn't metaphorical, right? Like obviously, like you can refer to someone's soul as in like their overall character or something like that, right? But I mean soul in like the way that immediately comes to mind in the sense of like a ghost in the machine, a ghost that is like supernatural and um, exists outside or beyond the material and like. Um, is magical and mysterious, that, all that kind of stuff, right? And her answer was like really interesting. She said that she's forced into that position, and um, like oh wow, and yeah, like I mean, part of her was, I mean, this is just my impression, but it was like part of her believed it in that, like you know, this is just something that she assumes that she has a creative soul that's fundamentally different than computers. Um, but then she also realized that, or like she tied it to like her whole worldview as an artist. Like you must believe that in order to make art, presumably because otherwise you would just see it as like um, a mechanical trick that can be easily um, outsourced to computers or something like that. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe I should put forward, I guess, my theory and what art is because I think it would be explanatory of why she would come to such a commitment. My hypothesis is that art is a form of communication in the same sense that language is communication, but it's non-linguistic. Um, it's another vector we might say for communicating. And we're all familiar with the fact that there's ways of communicating outside of language, right? I mean, everyone knows, well, not everyone, but, it's it's largely accepted nowadays that through nonverbal cues such as facial expressions and body language you can convey sometimes um or or that people are picking up sometimes more information based on those nonverbal forms of communication than they are from the verbal in at least in certain contexts and i think with art the reason why she might feel committed to the idea or like, oh, I have to be committed to, the, to this idea of the soul because that's her only way of, of squaring the idea that she's like communicating something from her inner essence or something of that nature from the depths, right? Um, I, I personally don't think you have to make such a metaphysical commitment to, to see art as communicative in the same way that you don't have to have a soul to speak a language, right? And communicate that style of information. I think that's maybe what, um, why we can't ever say what art is for, because if art is essentially communicative, that means that art exists in relationship to other people and how the message is going to be received. 
I'm trying to find a way to say this more straightforwardly, but going back to your example of the ugly duckling art, right? The thing that the people purveying that sort of ideology about art don't want to look at is the possibility that there could be bad art, that you could actually badly communicate something through the whatever artistic medium, right? Which is, if that's possible with language or other forms of communication, then why wouldn't it be possible with art? And it sort of reminds me of like, if a, if a professor goes up to give a lecture, right? Linguistic communication. And, you know, speaks in a completely inarticulate way, makes a bunch of grammatical errors, um, you know, doesn't have his arguments structured in a proper way. You can't just fall back on the idea of like, well, the audience just didn't get it. Like it's, it's anyone's, who's to say what's a good lecture and what's a bad lecture, right? right. You wouldn't be able to, to fall back on that. Or maybe it just wasn't the right audience. They weren't in the right context to hear, to understand the brilliance of my lecture. That was actually just a bad lecture, right? Or it's a bad performance. I don't, for whatever reason, we don't want to admit that that's a possibility with art. And I think it's, it's maybe twofold. Because on the one hand, you have like Roland Barthes, the French death of the author guy, who basically wants to like kill the artist and say that there's no one, <laughs> there's no one on that end of the communication. And then there's the artists themselves who are always trying to like kill the audience and say, I don't care. I don't even care what the audience thinks. I just make art for me or for its own sake. Right. And that both of those perspectives kind of deny that most artists want their work to be appreciated. Right. They're, they're trying to communicate something about perhaps themselves or the world or whatever it is. Um, you know, that's why it occasionally could have these political overtones or whatever. And whenever there's this attempt to just turn off or shut down or, or excise one of the aspects of that relationship, it doesn't make sense anymore, and we get these nonsensical kind of answers. So that's that's sort of my my theory on it. It doesn't provide you like a telos for art because uh, you know communication could be used for any number of things. Um, but I do think we. We have a number of prejudices because of things like not wanting to ever say there could be good art and bad art, not wanting to ever say that like the audience and the artist sort of dialogue with one another and you like the artist can't just like disavow the audience and say that it doesn't matter what the audience thinks because that's clearly not true. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I do tend to try to focus on like kind of entertaining myself when I make stuff and you know teaching myself if I if I'm writing or just the the pleasure of creating beauty when I'm making art but that is um at least in part like like me focusing on that um let's say principally is at least in part an artifact of um you know my position as just like an obscure artist right like um it does matter to me that people enjoy it um and I don't even really know why. Like I, I, I feel it as an impulse, as a drive, as like I, I need to make this thing. And 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 like you said, I am communicating with people, um, 
in some way, right? Like even if it's just like, um, like trying to make to pass on the pleasure of beauty to others, it just feels like something I I I'm compelled to do. Um, one thing I, I wanted to uh, to bring up because it's like a, a good segue is you said that it's a, another vector for communicating, and I want to uh, jump on that and talk about word embeddings. So like. I mean, there's this part in, um, I think it's an, it's an unpublished essay on truth that Nietzsche wrote early on. Um, and he, he mentions that um, it's something about like how if you put like languages side by side, it's not really like it becomes apparent to you that, you know, truth isn't really a factor. It's just like these like kind of arbitrary um, uh, arbitrary things that are used for like, you know, getting along socially. And yeah, um, the example he uses is um, like masculine and feminine in German versus say French and how like if there was some like, uh, I don't know if this is true because I, I, I don't have a comprehensive knowledge of these languages. So I'm just going to make something up. Let's say the word for dress in French is masculine, and it in German it's feminine, right? Why would one call it masculine, the other call it feminine? Well, Nietzsche's point is sort of to say, this shows that the language is not, not grasping towards some sort of objective, mind-independent truth about the world. The language is making evaluations and judgments that, in some sense, like they don't the fact that they do not all match in their evaluations and judgments of things and the associations and correlations that are drawn in different languages um shows you that this is perspectival i guess we could say that the language is not it's not a the linguistic world is not created through what we might call like the scientific um drive to uncover the world or whatever it might be uh, at least if, if i'm recalling correctly i think that's the, roughly the argument that nietzsche gives there yes yes um and i mean like there there's truth to what he says in the sense that like there are differences right like you know the 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 thing about gendered objects is is true however um some something that was recently discovered, I mean, in the past um, few years, I think it's 2017, although I've, I, it might be earlier, like 2013. Um, but like, basically what they did is they, they ran like statistical analysis of words on like a big, um, um, like a big set of, of text. Um, I think they went through like Google News. I mean, there's, there's different ones, but just like a, a giant corpus of text. And they ran statistical analysis to see, like, um, you know, which words appear close to each other, right? And then they they made like a big map, right? They either call like a word vector or word embedding, and then they like, you know, if you were to give it a certain word, it could give you like the statistical likelihood of like one word being um, like coming right after it, and what they found which this sounds super crazy. It, it either sounds really crazy or just obvious. I'm not sure, which is, to me, it was amazing. But like, if you were to take the word embeddings, like the, the, the geometric map of the English language, 
um, and then use like a couple of reference points, like you know, dog or or house. You could like rotate that map um, and then match it to other languages that have like almost no uh, common like language roots. So like English and Spanish and Japanese. Like if you rotate each of them, um, they all map on the same way. Like that's amazing. <laughs> and um, yeah. And so now, like, I would classify that as mind blowing. I don't know if anyone would think that would be obvious. I mean, so like, yeah, like the, um, the, the reason I say it might be obvious to people is because like what those maps are describing is like logical relationships between words. And so like um, you can even do like word math. And the classic example is like, if you take, the vector for king, which is just like a set of numbers, and then subtract the vector numbers for man, and then add the vector for woman, it gives you queen. And so like, you know, in French, it would be like um, roi minus homme plus femme, which means, um, uh, what's the, the word in French for queen, but whatever that is, right? And so, and then like you can do um, other weird stuff, which I've seen, which is like, if you were to say like, um, um, I forget how he did the math for it, but it's like, which, which dog is the most dog? <laughs> it's like, um, <laughs> like, and it's Pitbull or like, which dog is the most cat? Um, I think it's just like, yeah, anyway, so, some math like that. And I've even seen... Um, Actually, the way I was introduced to this concept was someone was talking about how word embeddings can help us um, talk to uh, whales because, like, if like they they've built something called an autoencoder for dolphin communication, which just means that like they're able to um, like use a AI to separate the different types of calls that dolphins have, which is like a first step in like linking the, the semantics of those calls. I mean, you need a lot more data, but like you could in theory build like a word embedding map um, of like dolphinese or, or whaleese and then like map on the English one. And I mean, they've done these experiments where they, they just use like a single language set and like they don't even need to have like a translated set. They just need to find these like logical relationships um, and then like, anyway, but, um, yeah, no, I, I think I understand, but so what do you, what do you, what do you take from this? Assuming that this is like, if we, if we accept maybe the strong version of the claim for the sake of argument that logical relationships between concepts are what universal, is that where we're, uh, yeah. is that where you would go with that? Yeah, yeah. Like there's, um, I mean, the the technical term for that for it that they use is latent space. Just means like hidden space. So like, there's all these like hidden relationships that you can find with like enough compute. And, Very Taoist, uh, actually, in some way, isn't it? Um, you ever read the Tao Te Ching? No, no. I'm trying to think back to my Alan Watts, but it's been a while. Oh, I mean, I think you should. Alan Watts is great, but I think if you were to read it, you should forget about Alan Watts and um, maybe approach the 
book more like an engineer would think. Um, mm. It's incredibly short. I mean, you can read it in like 45 minutes. I mean, if that. Uh, but he, the one of the core concepts in Chinese is hidden versus manifest. And the entire focus of the book is to... That I guess the premise being our attention is always focused on the manifest thing. You might say like it's very common to take a romantic attitude for a number of reasons, or to regard that which is in front of you sort of the most obvious object, which is usually going to be something that is either useful to you or or a hindrance to you. Right? The ph- the phenomenon as it appears that's most relevant to you because it's either a challenge or a tool or something of that nature. The The entire book is basically trying to flip your attention to the hidden, like all of the things in the background that make the apparently spontaneous things like quote unquote come into being. The hidden correspondences we might say between logic and or the web of concepts that are going to make up any language. Okay, a language emerges, but there's actually, you know, and it and it seems as if people are just assigning arbitrary sounds to arbitrary concepts that they're just pairing with those sounds. But that in fact there is a certain way that it always plays out. Um due to I mean, I guess what would it be? Due to the just the structure of the brain, the physiology? what we've evolved to be, we're going to necessarily, I mean, it would be, the real question would be if they could map it onto the dolphin language and we start communicating with dolphins. Because then that would suggest, as Fritz Stahl and others have suggested, that if animals have the same like deep generative grammar or whatever, that uh, Wittgenstein would be wrong, that if a lion could speak, we would understand him. Is that, is, do you, would you hazard a position on Wittgenstein was wrong about that? I've been thinking a lot about it, but um, I, I can't really wrap my head around it. Um, one thing, though, that they mentioned is like they've done, uh, I, I forget the name for it. It's like bioacoustic, whatever, but um, they have tried like doing this double blind thing where they go out into the field and they'll play like a sound for the whales and they don't know what, what the sound is. And then they're supposed to like see how the whales respond. And one of the things they tried, you know, they went on the field, they played the sound, and then this one humpback whale just started freaking out. He started doing all these, like, um, like crazy aggressive things that they've never seen before. And then when they checked what they were playing, it was like, um, it was his name. So it would be like, um, like, like, I don't know, like, it, from their point of view, it would be like this insane thing where he's just, like, swimming around, and then he hears, like, someone mimicking him like convincing oh wow so he's like what what no that's me (laughs) so he started like i don't know um and and so and then they were also saying like you know these like some of these animals have been around for millions of years and their communicative culture has presumably spanned a really long time and i think for whales they it's like they um they sometimes have these like um meme songs so like one of them will play a song then become really popular and like a lot of them will play it and then they're concerned like okay well what if we start communicating with them and we create this like weird like mind virus and we get some of them obsessed or i mean i 
at first I thought it was ridiculous, but the more I thought about it, I'm like, hmm, it is kind of like a Star Trek thing where we're like this extremely advanced civilization interacting with these people who have had basically the same culture for millions of years. And we have the ability to like totally um, like blow their minds. Like this one guy was trying to do these like, um, like trying to, to build like word vectors to explain the concept of civilization to them. So it'd be like, um, I don't know, like, like group minus self uh, plus large, I don't know, something like that. Um, but, but yeah, like your question is like, you know, would they even be able to like reach the metacognitive state that lets them like reflect to, to any degree that would push them out of like their, you know, basic communicative mode. Um, I, I really, I don't know. I hope so. It'd be really cool. Are, have yeah. you ever, are you familiar with the Julian Jane's, um, theory about the bicameral mind? Um, something about how like our, our consciousness has dramatically changed, but you'd have to inform me a bit more. His, so are you, I guess to, to answer that with another question, are you familiar with like Gazaniga's research about people with a, a, a split left and right hemisphere where they don't properly communicate? Yes. I mean, superficially, like I've, I've heard that like they, they do like um, report something about there being like two separate consciousnesses and sometimes like one. It's not quite that way. It's more like people. So people who've had this procedure done where they've had their left and right brain basically severed, which I think is a treatment for like really severe seizures. But what they found was it's, it's not exactly like a different consciousness. What would happen is. So for example, like a, a woman who had this procedure done is trying to pick out an outfit. And she would, you know, have already picked out, like, a pair of, you know, pants or slacks or whatever. And then, like, with her other hand, she then picks out another pair of pants. Um, and it, this is not, like, something she's consciously deciding to do. It's like her different sides of her brain are both making their own independent decision and not coordinating it. Um, and... I always mix up which hemisphere is which, but there's one that is verbally apt and another which is not and can't really explain itself or its actions at all. Jane's theory basically is that um, language was a novel way or it was an innovation of um, like language and I guess our idea of self-consciousness that we now have was an, a very recent innovation in human history and that prior to this, people with um, a bicameral brain would experience something somewhat similar to these people uh, that had had this procedure to deal with seizures, um, where the way Jaynes describes it, he also seems to think that schizophrenics might be sort of like a throwback, like an atavism that what's happening with schizophrenics is that they're um, experiencing the world the way everyone used to experience the world before we had this faculty. In the sense that you would experience your own thoughts as if they were a command or decree coming from something external to you. Like that this was sort of like the verbal, rational, discursive side of the brain. 
uh, making itself known in the consciousness, and that people didn't have this self-reflective sense of being like an identity, right? And uh, having like an inner monologue. To the extent that the inner monologue existed, it, it was experienced basically as like commands from the gods is his theory. And so that organized religion basically is something that only happens once the gods stopped speaking to us. We then came up with all these ideas about, you know, reconnecting with the divine. I don't know if I believe it. I, a lot of people have said, I mean, I think it was like Dawkins said it was either like, you know, either utterly absurd or like the most brilliant theory anyone's might come up with. Um, and it, you know, again, I'm not sure. The reason, part of the reason why I bring it up, though, is we don't even really understand our own. Like, what we don't know what the that's that's one aspect of what would you say the unknown unknowns when dealing with trying to like map on these these logical maps of linguistic concepts onto other species. That the way their brain is structured, that's at least possible, might make it uh, impossible for such communication to occur. Um, you know, may, I, I guess the short version of what I'm saying is maybe all these dolphins are swimming around with bicameral brains <laughs> where they wouldn't even perceive. Or if they do, I mean, I guess you, you could say, well, no, they have language, right? So they, they clearly according to Jane's theory, have, have advanced onto something else. But then that raises other deeper questions, right? Because would dolphins then have their own religion? What, why would we expect them not to have come up with their own dolphin religions? And what sort of like superstitions and irrational beliefs might they have? Um, which could make it, it could also be a challenge to like just communicating with them at all. I don't know. I guess this is kind of a rabbit hole, but those are just the thoughts I have. I like thinking about this possibility. I don't know how I didn't. Yeah, like, uh, of course, that they would have all these irrational beliefs. Like, I don't know why I would expect them to be like an avatar where like their beliefs are just like a perfect map onto reality. Like, <laughs> it's just right. like this, but like, um, yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely um, I mean, I wonder like what you would first want to tell them of like my, the first thing I'd want to tell them of is like evolution, like how they came to be what they are. And I bet there'd be like people, dolphins would be like, no, there's no way. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. That would probably be, I mean, I would actually not want to tell them that <laughs> probably that I think they would find it too. I would, I would just assume that most organisms raising that into their awareness would be too horrifying for them. <laughs> really? Well, yeah. I mean, and that maybe that's my bias as a human that I just assume they wouldn't be able to cope the way that I can, right? Like, uh, I would be, I would be doing, I would be doing that dolphin a disservice by by bringing it into the the knowledge of good and evil, right? The the original sin of humanity, uh, the self consciousness of our of our who and what we are um why would i like want to curse another animal with that okay in a, in a way I, I think i know where you're getting at but here's something i want to propose to you i want to get your thoughts on this so like if you were to think about um you know this th this this word embedding that uh comes about by like studying enough 
um, words, right? So you have like these logical relationships that do map onto the way the world works because like, you know, these, these words are being used in certain contexts and those contexts do exist, like, you know, in the physical world. And so um, if communication is in any way effective, it will have to reflect the real world in some way. But then I'm thinking like, okay, what is the latent space of like emotional affect? So like um, when I think about, for example, the um, like, like a, a comforting lie, such as, um, I don't know, like you're, you're really special, God cares about you, and you're going to live forever in bliss after you die. Um, like whatever like emotional affect um, is being induced in that person is like a, a real biological or, or like a real, um, you know, like mental state, like that mental state exists. But like if you could somehow find like the, the latent space, like, like the root in latent space to that emotional affect, but just with like more realistic language. And I think like the only reason we haven't done that is just like a matter of skill. Cause like, to me, if you, if you really understand like, you know, evolutionary history and we assume that it's true, like there's no reason why it shouldn't feel even better than like, like this really clumsy set of, of, of uh, dogmatic beliefs that religion represents, right? It just so happens that like those religious, um, uh, um, those religious ideas have just been like honed over time, presumably, and have been you know through natural selected, uh, uh, like naturally, or <laughs> they've been selected throughout time through culture, so that like the most punchy ideas will you know grab people, um, but like. I don't see why it's like not possible to have like a set of true or like accurate ideas that also provide like a maximal level of like um like emotional joy in your life. Do you know what I mean? Uh hmm. Well, how would I put it? I I guess I would agree with you at least nominally. Maybe maybe the place I would start, which I think does tacitly agree with what you're saying that the truth or falsehood of a belief or commitment or statement is actually unrelated to, to like the pleasure it gives you or the, the sort of the emotional affect that it creates. So the, I mean the, the most obvious point one could make in light of that is that the, as you said, the comforting lie, right? something that is not true but is nevertheless comforting but then if they're unrelated right couldn't we find something that happens to be true and is also comforting but i guess i guess the question i would ask maybe maybe a better way to put it rather than saying they're unrelated is saying there's at least no pre-established relationship between the truth and what is comforting but I think it could also be the case that the truth is inherently discomforting or uncomfortable. That's at least possible as well, right? I mean, that would be Nietzsche's contention. And I mean, I don't know if I have like, it's almost like proving a negative to say that he's wrong. And he, he can kind of always get out of it because he 
because of Nietzsche's position on truth, right? Um, what even is an objective truth? I don't know. I'm not convinced that you could necessarily find something because I think if we had found that formula, well, okay, as you're saying, it's a matter of skill. We just aren't skilled enough yet to 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 find that. I'm not sure because it seems like, just to put it bluntly, the to be a living thing does mean to essentially be part of this process of life which is inherently like exploitative where you are this machine of eating and reproducing and it's you could i think rather convincingly portray that poetically as sort of like a meat a swirling circular meat grinder right we're constantly grinding up forms of life that are all just as much concerned with preserving themselves and their offspring as we are, albeit less consciously, um, you know, things are just constantly like getting ground up, chewed up, eaten and digested so that other things can live. But you know, that they just, they, they too go on to become part of the meat grinder themselves. Right. And we're just ever marching forward into it. And maybe the question then is like, could you have a different, poetical representation, a different set of metaphors or something that are true to describe what this life is. And you could maybe even say that that's something that Nietzsche does. And yeah. part of his project is anti-universalist because he's kind of saying he, I guess he pun question, right? Where he sort of says, there's no way for me to accurately describe life in a way that all of you will actually find compelling, but maybe some of you will. Right, and for the rest of you, there's Christianity, <laughs> and so I guess that that would be my that. position on it. Okay, yeah, I really like that. Um, I mean, like you were saying that the um, you're talking about the bicameral mind, and the way I understood it is that there was this big change from um, like ancient humans to today, where like they experienced like representative verbal commands as coming from an external source. I think that on some level, like that, it has to have worked like that, right? Like it, it has to have started as something that was that, that had like a really ambiguous source that was then implemented, and like I would say that we're still kind of in the transition because, like, so much of meditative training, at least in the one that I follow, like like Theravada Buddhism, like so much of meditative training in that tradition is learning to treat like your thoughts and voices um, like as these really ephemeral and um, like a natural phenomenon, but also to not see them as like, you know, the, the sky is falling. Like it's basically learning to uncouple like the, um, the way that, that these commands can hijack you because they like often they they are experienced as a separate um force right like they just kind of come to you and like even the way that I'm producing sentences now like I I don't really know how it's happening like I'm doing it right and I've been like conditioned enough in order to like you know stay within like a certain set of parameters um but like these words are just kind of like bubbling up and 
it's not like I'm I'm like you know the the homunculus inside like you know uh, designing it from the very from from some like you know a position of the soul or something like that, and so like the the skill involved is to kind of put that in its place and see that it is kind of amazing that these things can emerge from the brain, um, but I mean I'm sure you've you uh, like who doesn't feel that of like just a certain thought can just like crush you right like for me it's um yeah well and it's self-identification with the thought too right yes that yes something you're taught to detach yourself from um that 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 thought isn't me <laughs> in some sense because well you could look at it like things that make you angry or stimulate anger you're just sort of giving in to the stimulus response and necessarily self-identifying with this feeling this thought that like we've been saying this whole time seemingly comes out of nowhere and yeah the the i guess you could say the technique the meditative technique of buddhism is to create that intermediary and say i don't have to be carried away by this thought which is extremely difficult like it feels like um right <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I created a meme back when I was a Buddhist of, uh, have you seen the, the Dark Knight Rises? Uh, the Batman movie? Yeah, it's like the third Batman movie. There's a scene where Bane, who's a huge, hulking, like, evil, stone-cold killer, basically, has been hired by a very rich man to ruin Bruce Wayne's life. And he says to him, uh, I'm in charge. You're, you're, he's like, I'm in charge here. And Bane says, uh, do you feel in charge? <laughs> and, you know, he's this like hulking man who then so basically suffocates him to death by just like grabbing his face with his hand and like smothering him. And uh, I, I made a meme at the time when I was meditating of uh, basically taking and editing the subtitles. So it's like me while I'm meditating, I'm in charge here. And then Bane is my thoughts. And he says, do you feel in charge? I like that. Yeah, there's like, um, uh, I've heard of this meditative exercise for kids where like they're taught to like close their eyes and then like picture all of their thoughts as like fishes or fish jumping out of a, a pond. And this one kid said that like, you know, he had all like he enjoyed watching the fish jump out, but that there was this one, um, this one fish that he couldn't let jump out, which was like uh, his anger. Um I thought it was like impressive that kids could um like find that level of distance and like observation with like their own impulses. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's also funny cuz uh, that's how David Lynch talks about finding his ideas. It's like grab trying to grab a fish, like swimming. Like there's a lot of that kind of imagery of like the the ocean of the mind. And thoughts as like sort of like somehow aquatic creatures swimming swimming around in it right um and that seems to be cross-cultural as well might be one of those embedded uh embedded linguistic concepts yeah i mean th it it's um it's especially apparent to me like when i'm when i get stoned like it um there's some like engine that revs up and it's just like this um um, this like intense stream of of thoughts again stream it's yeah 
Yeah, you you know how that works, right? No. Have you ever looked into the the physiology of like THC and how that? It I I don't think I can tell you in super granular detail, but it basically the physiological what it does to you in in your brain is makes it so the chain of neurons that are firing it has the functional effect of making whatever your current stream of thought is seem to be the most fascinating thing in the world. So that's why it, like people can be very creative on it and also very like paranoid because if you start going down like a stream of thought that's paranoid um that can consume you, right? But also and I've certainly used marijuana for this purpose throughout my life. In small doses, it can help you focus creatively like nobody's business, or at least me. Um, where, you know, the song I'm working on is the sole thing that interests me. And that's incredibly useful. And I, I part of that is just me, though, because even regardless um, whether, you know, I'm partaking or not, I can just spend hours and hours and hours just doing one thing creatively. Um, And just, you know, but I don't know. I think uh, it's at least fascinating that you can ingest a substance that will alter your consciousness in a very predictable way, right? And the kinds of thoughts you'll have and the experience you'll have with those thoughts and how you'll attach to those thoughts. And yet there's still this prejudice that, (laughs) <laughs> you know, the mind is like this mysterious, vague, indefinable thing. I'm the soul or whatever we want to say. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I have to ask you like the, um, and by the way, that was, that was really interesting. Like that made something really click for me because my experience of getting high is like, uh, I remember these moments where I just felt like, um, like this intense pleasure of that focus on a particular piece and just like, um, like you said, it, it, it's meaning salience just uh, explodes. And that, that, that feeling of like focus and meaning being amplified is just like blissful. Um, but then like the next day, I'm like, what the, <laughs> this is garbage, right? But um, like, I, like when it comes to, um, you know, these, these clear causal um, links between like substances and chemicals and like your mental state and stuff like that, um, it, it reminds me of, um, like listening to fighters like GSP talk about how, like, well, of course the brain creates the mind. Cause you know, my friend got hit in the head a billion times and he's totally different. Um, right. like, like in a way it's the most obvious thing in the world, but, um, anecdotally, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who just assume the soul is real. And that like, like even people who are like, um, uh, about atheists, like I talked to a woman who's like, "Oh yeah, no, after we die, that that's that's pretty much it. There's no God." But then, like the more I pressed, they're like, "Well, yeah, there, no, there's probably like some like indestructible thing that consists of of who I am." Um, that like it's some X factor that's the same, even you know, like throughout my entire life. That's me. Yeah, and I mean, I'm curious, like how. How was your personal experience? Like, is that a, a common belief? Yeah, like, yeah. I, I would say so. Well, I mean, uh, it, you, I think it goes unarticulated more often than not. But it, it's, 
you see people act upon that functional they act as if that prejudice is true even when their every belief would suggest to them that it's not um and i i think that's just fairly common as well because it people know what their beliefs are well most people do right but it's almost like there's a second order <laughs> like the implication of your beliefs in some right that's something that even most philosophers you know in the sense that most philosophers contradict themselves at some point right um most people have not actually and I'm I include myself in this created some sort of coherent framework of all of the what all the different ideolo ideological commitments and beliefs they hold actually imply in some and haven't done the introspection to see what that would would imply but that's all just to say i i think in the way that people treat I, I'm, I'm trying to think of like a good example but because i was going to use the example of like a terminal like comatose patient but i guess there's always the possibility that they could like uh you know come out of the coma but I guess you could say in a, in a situation where somebody's in a permanent vegetative state, right? And, and the family wants to preserve the life of this person when really they're just preserving like a body, like they're, they're preserving like a, a, a non-functional brain, right? Because they believe that there's some sort of indestructible identity of that person that still exists in that body, even though after whatever's happened, they're in a permanent vegetative state. Right. Um, and there were, there's been controversies of that, you know, tied in with like euthanasia and things of that nature. But just from a, a purely logical standpoint, like that's people acting as though that person has a soul, which they may or may not believe. Right. But if they, if they are it, <laughs> approaching the world from an atheistic or materialistic lens, then it would be make absolutely no sense to want to preserve that person. Cause it, you know, it's actually takes, non-trivial amount of resources to preserve a human body that is non-functional in that way. Like, hooked up to all these machines and everything. So I guess that's one example. I, I would say, so I would agree. Um, one, one interesting thing I heard um, with regards to, like, like people's behavior around death was that, um, like, the reason that there's such a a concentrated set of rich or not concentrated but like why it's so common for there to be funeral rites among people um and to treat the body with such respect is that like if you extend the the boundary of like um if you extend the boundary to which someone is owed respect like past death then that um makes it a lot less likely for you to um uh disrespect people's body when they're close to death or like when they get old because it's like you've you've gone so far past you know like the the mm. the final state where it's like okay you're not going to like look at someone who's old and be like well come on they're near the finish just kill them right i wonder if that's true like i'm thinking of elephants right like how they they grieve like it might also be just like the you know the the emotional trauma or like the the um, inability to um, 
accept right to the that, that someone's disappeared yeah i think there's also just a lack of comprehension about mortality because it requires you to imagine a world without yourself in it which <laughs> i don't think is possible and so it's like a it's like a does not compute moment and so I don't know. It almost like the idea that the, the person is still like their essence is still there in some way, like in the body or wherever else. Very common, as you said. And I think part of that might just be like a refusal to, or not a refusal, but just like an inability to comprehend like the termination of consciousness. Like it must still be there because it, it, that zero is like an impossibility for us to to wrangle with and then like um that essence is then like mm, shifted onto uh like a rock right like when you have these grave markers um i find it i just find it so interesting like when when i walk through the graveyard and there's a lot of people whose names are in different languages and it's like they are being preserved through just like these little symbol markings like that's the um that's like what their essence has been reduced to um and it i, I guess it must be meaningful right like and, and also i think it's nice to have like a physical space where like i guess you go and like you um you're you're there to like re remind or like to to reminisce about that person Although yeah. I don't know, I, I've never. I th like... it, it, isn't it remarkable that it's because the the <laughs> that whole idea makes sense to me in like a pagan context? But isn't it remarkable that we still do it after two thousand years of Christianity, where the soul, like that per new body that they've been reincarnated into in heaven, right? Like a perfect body that's like eternal. And this was just sort of like a sinful mortal coil that they shuffled off. Yeah. And yet we still want to go pay our respects to it. Yeah, it, it is very strange. Um, let the dead bury their dead, right? That's the <laughs> like hardcore. Yeah. Well, so, so we're, we're coming up uh, on two hours. I wanted to ask, I mean, I guess we've touched on some of the issues of it, but did you want to keep going and just talk, or I guess touch on the genius of the species passage, which you, you quote in the article? Sure. So the, um, the reason I brought it up um, is because it's such a, you know, a concise and insightful illustration of like how consciousness is a natural phenomena that evolved over time and had like certain pressures to bring it there it wasn't like something that was you know um you know designed from the beginning as like this perfect thing like it's something that has changed over time and continues to change um and arguably improve like the the um, the amazing thing to me is just like how like how quickly culture can accelerate in complexity and sophistication um, and then the, the critical aspect of that is that like, I think that there's a certain, um, I, I'm tempted to say ideological, 
um, constraint that Nietzsche has when he was writing that, which like forces him to like avow. Um, what would you say, the anti-consciousness perspective? <laughs> sure, yeah, or like the um, like the, the idea that your your subjectivity is like like that. There's like a pure subject beneath all that. So like the 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 big revolution in Darwinistic thinking is that like you don't need to have like um, an intelligent designer to create intelligent things. You don't need to have a complex thing to create another complex thing, which goes against what would be, you know, a reasonable assumption based on our own experience, which is that like, you know, you can't, you can't have like someone who's really stupid create something that's really intelligent, right? You can't have like a, an infant design a skyscraper. So like, although it is funny because that is what we're doing with AI, right? Because that's right. how we just started the conversation is that we don't even understand how smart um, AI is to put it in a really silly terms but yeah sure i mean at the very least we've taken um we've taken intelligence and like offloaded it to um like taken it taken it away from the or we've lightened our cognitive load basically we, we don't have to do the thinking ourselves we get a machine to do it or like to create which i mean would make sense that it's possible because it was how um um, I mean, it, it, in a way, it's kind of like a mechanical process, the revolution, although mechanical is kind of a weird word. It, it conjures up images of, you know, like, um, like car parts or something. Gears. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like when it comes to, um, Nietzsche's perspective, it's like, um, he talks about the evolution of consciousness as something that was, um, um, like created through social interaction or like the need for social interaction. And, you know, Dennett has this whole thing about how, um, like you can imagine just really simple vocal vocalizations between, you know, our early ancestors that then also give us the ability to vocalize just to ourselves. And, um, as I mentioned, like, I'm sure most people have had the experience where like, they're just talking in a conversation, like they say something that's unexpected to them, which would be impossible if like it's all just kind of, you know, um, if the brain is like, you know, designing connected in some um, some top down fashion. But um, so, yeah, so, so you have this the system where you have like a, um, an, an evolutionary process where it, it's kind of like bootstrapping itself into this more intelligent state that can use symbols as tools to build better tools and so on. So it's something that's increasing in complexity and power over time. But then because that process is so, um, um, is so fundamentally reliant on other people and on social intercourse, um, it seems to me that Nietzsche just can't accept it. And he's like, well, okay, we have this, this, this power, this tool of consciousness in our head and it was created through social discourse. And therefore, because it is um, something entwined with social discourse, it's a product of the herd. And the herd is trash. And what's really important, what's really valuable, is just like the fundamental thing that you are aside from the herd. Um, and, and to me, it's just like it, it, it breaks down 
it, it assumes that somehow you can use consciousness as um, as like this this or to see consciousness as like this intruder that's come through the herd, and because it's uh, from the herd, it's something poisonous, and you have to kind of like I don't know, dumb yourself down, or just like um, enjoy these like I don't know, like beastly impulses or something, right? Whereas like the very logic of the proposition is that like consciousness is now a tool you can like bootstrap uh, even further. And I think in the genealogy of morals, he kind of makes that point, like, you know, personal responsibility and the ability to remember things and make promises. Um, and just like, uh, like, like that was an extremely painful and long process that was made for like, you know, the purposes of like social control. But now we have that as a, as a tool at our disposal to like go further, right? Like we're not tied to its origin. Um, I mean, that's aside from the fact that like, um, you know, you need other, like, like you get so much from other people, right? Like um, just the fact. Yeah. Well, can I, can I? Yeah, sorry, yeah. go ahead. I, I, I would say, I, I, I take your point here as well, but I do think you have articulated because, okay, I do see the ways in which what Nietzsche says in the gay science and the genius of the species could definitely be read as he's speaking of like a more fundamental truth self that is like prior to any of the, you know, the terrible um, mistake of consciousness that the herd has imposed upon you, right? And but on the other hand, he, Nietzsche does seem to be in other passages. I mean, I'm thinking of Twilight of Idols here and Beyond Good and Evil. So especially in his later career, to be completely on board with the idea of self-identity or some sort of like underlying essence to your character is a, essentially a fictional idea, right? That he, he criticizes the soul superstition as much as we would. Yeah. So then it makes me wonder, okay, what is he then doing? Can I interpret the genius of the species in a way that makes sense of that contradiction? And I think you kind of touch on it, at, at least in a way, that maybe the overall point isn't to say, okay, the herd is trash, so consciousness is trash. Maybe the point is to say, if we want consciousness to to move on to what we might say, okay, let's say the transition from man to, to over man, the next phase of human consciousness, right? The consciousness of the future. Um, maybe we have to start by recognizing the ways in which consciousness itself inclines towards certain tendencies that are a result of the fact that its origin is the herd. Whether we want to talk about the context he talks about in uh, genius of the species where he's basically talking about how it's like the most general concept is the one that is the most useful in the most contexts and so that this is what's going to gain the most communicative capital and language in some sense right that is sort of like this is going to create the lowest common denominator of concepts and and then we might we might say that maybe you see that in this these linguistic maps you were talking about that could be swapped over to different languages in English and Japanese and Spanish, right? That maybe they follow this predictable pattern because like 
it is the lowest con- common denominator. That's like that's what's most generalizable, and that's what languages are going to focus on. Or as you brought up with in genealogy of morals, that maybe consciousness is expanded by the herd in the sense that it uses punishment to um, constrain behavior, and this requires us to create a memory, and and that memory opens up the space where we're going to have the self-consciousness. I think the way I take the most usefulness out of a passage like Genius of the Species is seeing how if consciousness does have these tendencies, if we recognize those tendencies, perhaps the way to quote-unquote evolve consciousness further is to see, to identify those as the, the very limitations, right? So one such limitation would be we're thinking in terms of these concepts or categories which are sort of like cold, dead snapshots of reality uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, every experience or memory that we have and that we retain is sort of like the frame of a uh, film, right? But that real life doesn't have frames in some sense. It's this, the Heraclitean flux, right? That um, the concept never captures the living dynamic reality. It, it's only a snapshot and therefore has to assume all of these things like the identity of non-identical things. And um, that doesn't mean it's not useful, right? But that perhaps the recognition that consciousness has these tendencies towards, for lack of a better word, Platonism, <laughs> right? To, to create ideas or forms. Maybe it'll be that recognition that allows us to sort of, um, I don't know, get not mistake those conscious for reality itself. That's my attempt at steel manning that Nietzsche passage. Okay, I mean the um, the counter I would make to that is like if you look at, um, for example, like the. There's another part in in his essay on truth where he talks about like you know the the inverted uh, spectrum idea where it's like well what if you see red as blue, and um, and so on right now, like when you talk about, for example like the, the like concepts not being able to cover reality now that that is true in the sense that like if you look at the like development of concepts it's like you know, it must have gone from, you know, saying like, well, there's a predator coming, right? Which has like extremely simple semantic content that is meant for like a group setting, right? It doesn't really say anything about like the origin of the predator, like his his or her intentions or anything like that. It's like extremely like low res, right? And for there to be any progress, like it has to be like this really slow movement where there's like, you know, some lower common denominator base, right? And then it, like, I mean, I guess like you said, you would have an evolution of, of consciousness. But then, like, you know, he says everything that enters consciousness becomes, like, stupid, shallow, thin, right? Like, it's about corruption, falsification, superficialization, etc. Now, I think the, uh, like, so sorry, the reason I brought up the thing about red and blue is like when he was writing that, I think 
I want to, I think that was like maybe the 1860s, 70s, something like that. Um, and around that time, I don't know when, but like, like that's when like Maxwell was coming up with his equations for the electromagnetic spectrum. And it wasn't until the, the 1880s, late 1880s, where like Hertz had like experimental confirmation of that. And so like, imagine you have, you have this theory from Maxwell, right? Which is like a conceptual theory that then gives, um, gives a conceptual basis for finding out what is probably, you know, the, like the central or like one of the central findings that ha helps create the modern world we live in, right? Like there's like the electromagnetic spectrum is something that most people take for granted, but like in Nietzsche's time that they didn't know that they didn't know that like, you know, red and blue and green had like a specific wavelength. So like, to me, that's like such a clear, um, refuge refutal of the idea that like, concepts aren't pointing to reality like if anything like that is what brings us even closer um and even like stuff like um you know like uh, like classical physics moving on to quantum physics like that was through like um like even like gps signals right like they work on on general relativity like or like that kind of um math is really important for it right so um yeah, I mean, I think in that passage. Yeah, but he, isn't that a, isn't that a wonderful example though? Because general relativity, like no no one in physics like thinks of that as like the final word in describing like uh, like general relativity. I mean, I know that we're not, um, you know, we haven't like arrived at like our next big, you know, the M theory or whatever. But I. The fact that it works, even if it doesn't ultimately re explain reality, I think is really informative or is really important, right? right. It, it, it's not that it, what we want is something that works. Maybe the most compelling thing in your argument is that consciousness and these conceptualization is, is a source of power for human beings. Um, but I, I think that, I don't know if you actually syllogistically have the argument to get from that claim to the claim that you're more accurately coming to like the truth. Does that make sense? Like the, you're making the, the case that like, look, look at what we're able to do now. Like we, we understand the electromagnetic spectrum that has all these uses and applications, but does that ever get you out of the, but basically what Nietzsche is pointing to in that whole idea, right? Because I think that's part of a thought experiment, six, and he even takes it further. He's like, or if, like, let's imagine one person gets a certain sensation, and he experiences it as a as a smell, and another person experiences it as a sound, or something like that. And it's the same sensation that other people are experiencing as, like, light. And I believe what he says is, if this were the case, it would be impossible for us to conceive of nature as orderly. But I believe he goes on to say immediately after that, that the he actually makes somewhat of the point you're making where he says as science continues to work away in its mind shafts of knowledge how um how different is our experience from anything that would suggest just a total disordered randomness right it's the fact that we do find these like testable repeatable um 
quote unquote truths that does give us the indication of the um what would we say coherence of science or the orderliness of nature i'm kind of losing it i think i'm getting tired but um i'd have to reread the essay but i think in truth and lies nietzsche kind of makes the same point that we actually we don't actually have like that the case of that thought experiment where we have like this sort of like chaotic experience where everyone's experiencing a different sense reality um it does seem that science is producing these results but uh, to me what i take from that is that what's relevant to us is like the power it gives us rather than the indication that it's the concept is somehow like bringing us closer to reality because i'm not exactly sure what that would mean and 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 that might be for reasons that are maybe too metaphysical for the average physicist right or um if not metaphysical concerning the discipline of metaphysics, I guess we'd say. Hmm. I mean, like the, well, I could be misremembering, but like the, the inverted spectrum thing, I remember him uh, bringing that up as like um, an example of the way in which like the, the buck stops at subjectivity, like, okay, well, maybe someone sees um, red as blue and like you can never really know and that you have to kind of keep in mind that like people have these different perspectives and like I mean of course that's true right like it, it would be amazing to be able to see new colors but I I, I mean the, the color thing um, really stuck out to me because like it I don't know it, on its face it doesn't make any sense just because like you have different like yellow is just brighter than um, than other colors, right? Like yellow is brighter than than blue, but um, like even just from like again like an evolutionary perspective, it's not like we just happen to have these like like the subjective experience of colors. Like there's all sorts of um, um, like affective behaviors, as like galvanic skin response. Um, that you get from certain colors in certain situations, along with, you know, like the the ripeness of fruits. And, you know, if you tie that into like the um, the way that different colors rest on the electromagnetic spectrum, it would seem very strange to me that like you would have like just kind of like this random assortment of like subject subjective experiences of colors. But um, like, when okay, so about- I, I, I found the passage where he says, so he kind of gives the, the experiment that we're t- the thought experiment that we're talking about, um, where he says, "Well, okay." One of the ways he ends it's I think in this paragraph where he says, "In the same manner, an eternally repeated dream would certainly be felt and judged to be reality." Um, each person who's familiar with such considerations has no doubt felt a deep mistrust of all idealism of this sort, just as often as he has. Uh, quite early convinced himself of the eternal consistency, omnipresence, and fallibility of the laws of nature. He has concluded that so far as we can penetrate uh, here from the telescopic heights to the microscopic depths, everything is secure, complete, infinite, regular, and without any gaps. Science will be able to dig successfully in this shaft forever, and the things that are discovered will harmonize with and not contradict each other. How little does this resemble a product of the imagination, for if it were such, there should be some place where the illusion and reality can be divined. Um, and then, okay, so it's after this where he says, against this, the following must be said. If each of us had a different kind of sense perception, 
if we could only perceive things now as a bird, now as a worm, now as a plant, or if each one of us saw stimulus as red, another as blue, etc., uh, nature would be grasped only as a creation which is subjective in the highest degree. So, I mean, I do have to say, I think, I, I see why you're interpreting the passage the way you are, but I don't think Nietzsche is actually committing to this. He's approaching this not just like as a random what if, but there's a reason why he, he begins with the idea of like imagining reality as a bird or as a worm. That we do actually have like different examples of different physiologies that might have construct a different experience of reality. And that this, if that were the case of different people, then we would feel nature to be subjective in the highest degree. But I think it's, it is really important that he says, how little does science resemble a product of the imagination? Which I, I think is his capitulation to kind of the point that you're, you're, you're making here that it's not as if we find like these totally random like results in science, right? That we do actually find like these testable, repeatable hypotheses. I don't know if I have like a good good answer though then to to why Nietzsche denigrates consciousness so much because that would imply that it's a source of power, right? So maybe that's in inherent it is a problem I guess I would say that I've noticed with Nietzsche because it is idealism I would say to say that we could do away with all idealism. It's somewhat metaphysical to be anti-metaphysical and to say that to to make the claim that we could maybe move beyond consciousness or somehow improve upon it seems to be, again, it's idealistic or maybe even moralistic in nature. Um, but, you know, that's where Nietzsche gets out of it by saying it's just the tyranny of words, <laughs> which <laughs> is, you know, doing mischief here because, of course, our language is the product of the herd. So I don't know. I don't know if I have like a, an impressive defense of Nietzsche beyond beyond that. Well, I mean, I do appreciate you. Like, because, I mean, of course, like you have um, this podcast and like I do get the impression that you try to be as charitable as possible. Um, and like, even if I'm right and he's making a bad point here, the, like I said, like it's, it's not as if he just sticks to his guns every single time. There's places where he... Um, I think says something different than what he says here. Um, but I do think that like some people um, believe this and I don't remember if I mentioned it on the essay, but I do like, like I, 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 I get the aesthetic appeal of this kind of thinking because like if you do hold the opposite view, which is that like consciousness is like this thing that's constantly bootstrapping then it means that like you basically have um like you're never complete right like you're just in you just happen to be in like one particular stage of the evolution of consciousness and like you're a complete idiot compared to someone from like you know a thousand years from now um at least like if you look at how um how much more reality is mapped out now than it was a thousand years ago i think i think there's a big difference and so well maybe i think there's a way and maybe this will be like my final thoughts i think there's a sense in which like nietzsche's concern is maybe more in the realm of what you were asking about earlier with like emotional affect right because 
it seems like he does have an idea for where consciousness, for us not being complete in the direction that consciousness can go. It's just that his concern isn't so much of like consciousness becoming like a better representation of the objective world, but like imagining a consciousness that is not, um, that transcends the limitations that he's more concerned with, which have to do with these like static dead representations of reality. Right. Uh, or with, I mean, resentment and uh, the desire to take revenge and, and all of these aspects of consciousness that were, again, you could say that those were, were things that were also imposed on people by, you know, if we take Nietzsche's account of genealogy and morals seriously, that would mean that the reason why we remember um, is because of this imposition by the collective upon us. And if that's true, I mean, that, that very memory is the source of things like resentment. And so it's like, I, I do feel like Nietzsche is also on the same page of like, I don't think he thinks we need to, I think the interpretation that we need to, that what Nietzsche is saying is to like reject consciousness and kind of go back to like indulging in irrational passions. I think he's imagining a sort of a sublation where we can be conscious, but without somehow overcome those limitations. Um, of consciousness that end up being somehow like a accusation against life. I don't know. That would be maybe like my best deal man I have for, for Nietzsche's view that I maybe, maybe the issue of like whether or not consciousness is actually like a source of power for whether it can be something that can, can, can aid our ability to have power over the world. That might not be his focus. Cause I think he, I think he would even maybe agree with that to some extent but his his concern is like what are the valuations of the people who hold that power because even if you hold great power that doesn't make you a noble spirited person right you could still have all of that baggage that's come with consciousness that conceptual baggage or whatever it might be um and so i think that's focus is overcoming that you're able to leave aside the question that we've put towards ourselves as like maybe a separate issue of how powerful is consciousness really does it really map onto the world now i will admit in nietzsche's notes and if you look at the entire corpus of his work i think he does definitively come down down on the side that consciousness is not what would we say something that accurately maps onto the objective world it would be interesting to have a debate just entirely about that and maybe we can but i don't <laughs> i think i'm about spent <laughs> for tonight yeah, so those will be my final thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you have a final final word on on anything? A final word on the nature of truth. Yeah, I mean, there there is that one like uh, I think in gay science where he's like, what is it like like urging urging people to become better physicists or or something like that. Where it's oh, just yeah, like, wanting to learn like, what's necessary in things, I think. Hail physics or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Just like the exhortation to learn more. I mean, like, I feel like, you know, one one flaw in my thinking that comes up again and again, I, I kind of alluded to earlier, was like, it's easy to feel like, like you kind of, well, at least personally, I, I think it's easy for me to feel like I more or less know what I need to know. In the sense that there isn't like some pressure, some some like huge pressing mystery on my day-to-day -day life. And so like I feel like it's easy to be lulled into thinking like, okay, well, we understand that life had this bottom-up process and there's like this replicating molecule, et cetera, et cetera. And like 
it certainly has like you know in, in broad strokes like i think of a, a more successful representation of what happened on earth compared to you know um creation myths and stuff like that but there's i feel like it's still um a huge area of like of like think like potential things to learn um that could make a really important difference um in the way that we experience our love of life um like uh, in the way that we yeah experience reality and you know a small part of that might be like you know communicating with other animals if that's possible so i don't want it to sound like like i like i'm making more claims than i can like back up like i i do think there's like a lot of room for science to give better understanding of things and i think it's it's really too bad that the temptation is always to think that like the like mm, the case is kind of closed on all the important things um i, yeah, I, I that, really hope i don't give that impression yeah and it, you could some people do use nietzsche for that purpose which is a shame but some people use science for that purpose too um because you're defending yourself against that right you're like no i don't have to think about this um so yeah well, it's been, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you, uh, Andre. Um, with your article, Seedless Flowers, that we talked about, people can find it on your website, which I'll have in the description. Is there anything else uh, you wanted to plug? Everyone should follow Andre on Twitter if you want to see, or on, and on YouTube. I can put those in the description as well if you want to see some of his artwork and how he makes it. Anything else you want to shout out or... Um, I mean, yeah, like my YouTube channel, I'm trying out the handle of RTXs, um, hopefully to make it easier than my remaining name, Andrei Georgescu. But um, yeah, I also, any uh, any STEM people who find any uh, anything I can improve on, <laughs> I, I always like imagine that like I'll write these things and I'll have people like correcting me on stuff, but I usually just get like, like you know, screeds from people who are like half conscious. But um. Yeah, thanks a lot <laughs> for your time and the conversation. Really enjoyed it. People who who have not been punished enough or exposed to enough pain to be fully conscious. Right. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Well, uh, thanks, Andre. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimelyreflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.